All right, so our campaign that we've been going through has been called The Fully Formed Life. Uh, what we've been talking about is spiritual formation, which is one of those big kind of clunky words that means a lot of different things depending on who you ask, and it can be a little bit intimidating. Spiritual formation, we've kind of just boiled it down to say uh, growing in love for God and love for others. Okay, we're mostly basing this off of what Jesus teaches when he's asked what is the greatest commandment, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So these are the two areas that if we wanna grow, if we wanna be more like Jesus, then these are the areas that we should be growing in. Okay, growing in love for God, and we've been talking through what it looks like to love God with all of our heart, with all of our being. What does our heart mean? What does our soul mean? What does our strength mean? All of that stuff. We've been talking through how we can love God with all of who we are. And then last week we started and we transitioned to loving others and loving our neighbor as ourself. And what does that mean? Last week we said how the two have to go together. Just big picture. That we can't just love God and then be rude or cruel or mean towards other people. It doesn't work that way. Jesus, his entire ministry can kind of be summarized in this. Uh, what Scott McKnight calls the Jesus Creed, that his whole ministry is kind of encapsulated in this, love God and love others. And Jesus constantly throughout his ministry calls people to the reality that, hey, if you are attempting to love God and you are hating or being unloving towards your neighbor, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> this whole religious thing, you're doing it wrong. So... For the next few weeks, we're going to dive into what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to look at it through the lens of three different spheres, okay? We're going to look at it today through the lens of loving your neighbor as in loving the world, those outside of the church or those who don't believe or profess to follow Jesus. Then we're going to look at it in the sense of loving your neighbor as those within the church, those who do claim to love and follow and believe in Jesus. And then we're going to look at it through the lens of your home. So those who you are in closest proximity to, how do we love them the way God called us to? And what we're taking this largely from is Luke 10, 25, beginning in verse 25. And this is going to kind of roll into what's known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. So you've likely heard of that, even if you're not super familiar with how the parable goes, um, this is going to roll into that. So we'll ex I'll explain it as we go. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along in your Bible, open up to Luke 10. We're going to start in verse 25. So it begins like this. That on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So something about the way that he asked this question or something about just the relationship that the teachers of the law and the Pharisees had to Jesus, Luke notices that, hey, this guy, he's not genuinely asking a question. He's not genuinely inquiring of Jesus, Jesus, teach me. He's, that's not his posture. His posture is one of testing. So what this means is he has the, he thinks that he has the truth, and we're going to come to find that he is actually correct. Um, he thinks that he has it, and he wants to make sure that Jesus' ideas conform with his ideas, okay? So in the devotional, we'll talk about this a little bit more as an application point. Do we do this when we come to scripture? Are we reading scripture to see if Jesus' ideas conform with our ideas and in that way test him? 
So then we can just take whatever we already agree with in Jesus' teachings and accept that, and then whatever we don't agree with in Jesus' teachings, we reject. That is the wrong way to approach Scripture, just as it is the wrong way for this expert in the law to approach Jesus. So here's his question. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What he's asking is, what must I do to be saved, okay? Um, this language is fascinating. We'll cover it in the devotional this week. I'm not going to spend time on it. But inheriting eternal life. Those two seem to be kind of at odds, right? You inherit something because of your status in the family, right? You don't work to inherit something. But we'll kind of tease out that language. So he's asking, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Life with God, to live forever with him in eternity. So note the question as well is not, is what must I do? So he's, he's stuck into this rhythm of, of action and activity and what must I do to inherit this so that I will attain it? And Jesus' answer reflects that. He says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He turns the question back on him. Because this guy is an expert in the law. He knows scripture, that is the Old Testament, very well. He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. Sounds familiar, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. So it's possible, it's likely, since we don't have any record of any rabbis or any uh, teachers of the Old Testament who taught these two together as the foundation of what it meant to follow God prior to Jesus. We have no record of that. So it's most likely that Jesus brought these two out and he was the first to connect the two, um, he likely heard Jesus teach this before, and he agrees with him, and he thinks he's right. So to his credit, he did agree with him. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. Again, that language tends to trick, trip us up. If you're familiar with um, a lot of the just language around salvation. We are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so nobody can boast. Jesus here is in contradicting that. This is where the initial question really comes into play. What must I do, he is asking, to be saved? And Jesus' answer here is reflecting that the actions of loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself are reflections of the internal life that has been changed and formed by God, as we've been talking throughout this whole campaign. So he answers correctly, and Jesus says, do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I hope as you're reading this story, you are putting yourself in the place of this teacher of the law, okay? As we should be as we're reading this. Are you asking questions of Jesus just to test him? This is what Luke is drawing us to. Um, and he's saying, when Jesus answers in a way that makes you a little squirmy or uncomfortable in your seat, do you then just try to justify yourself by moving the boundary lines is what's going to happen here. So this guy's trying to justify himself instead of taking Jesus' words at face value because he knows that he's not doing this. He isn't loving God. He isn't loving with all of his being. He's not loving his neighbor as himself. What would have been a beautiful interaction here would be for him to have asked of Jesus and said, what, would, what do I do when I don't do this perfectly? Like, what happens when I, when I don't love God with all of my being? Which is true, right? Or if he would have said something like, 
yeah, Jesus, like I try to love my neighbor as myself, but I constantly find myself failing. I'm selfish. That humble response from him, I think, would have launched into just a beautiful interaction between Jesus and this teacher of the law. Of Jesus calling him, come follow me. And would have led, like he did with Matthew and, and the others, come follow me. And if you follow me, they'll hear his teachings and see the truth. They'll see his, his death and crucifixion. They'll hear him talking about how this is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. They'll recognize his death as that. And then see his resurrection and know that he is indeed the only hope for eternal life. And that he vindicated himself by rising from the dead. All of these would have probably followed if this guy's response would have been one of humility and truly recognizing his own fallenness and how he constantly falls short of this standard of loving God with all of your being, okay? <laughs> and, and if you want to justify yourself about not loving God with all of your being, you're really missing the picture. You're missing the point entirely. Of course we don't always love God with all of our being. Of course, we don't always love our neighbor as ourself. We're selfish, sinful people. And so this guy, instead of responding with humility, he responds to justify himself, to attempt to move the boundary lines. And what he's really asking is, it's, it's really a debate in the first century because they thought of, the, Jew, the Jews thought of their neighbor as being in their home, their family, and their fellow Israelites, okay? So they did not view their neighbor as being those outside of those two categories. It was a debate, and it's not that far-fetched. We'll cover it more in the devotional. Luke 10, 30 to 31. So in reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This was a notoriously treacherous journey where people were often attacked and beaten. You would always travel with somebody else. Often there are reports... Uh, ancient documents often indicate how people would carry weapons with them along this journey because there's a lot of winding roads where there's a lot of places for uh, would-be assailants to hide and to do what they did to this guy. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him <clears throat> half dead. Then a priest happened to be going down on the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Uh, so too, a Levite. These, these two categories were to be the most like religious teachers. We would think of them as people who worked in the church, pastors, preachers, etc. Or priests even today. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, the important thing to note here is it's likely that these guys weren't just being rude and being cruel. Okay, they... they uh, Part of the Old Testament law was if their shadow even went over a dead body who was not their relative, their close relative, they would be unclean. Okay? So if you touched a dead body, you were unclean, which meant you then had to go through a ceremonial washing process, and you wouldn't be able to participate. For these guys, they wouldn't be able to do their job as priests and working in the temple. They would have had to go do this cleanliness process uh, for, I believe, eight days, and then they could go back to doing their job. So it's not out of just being cruel that they walk by on the other side of this guy. It is out of a desire to stay faithful to the Torah. 
It's out of a desire to be holy. It's out of a desire to follow God and his laws. See what I'm saying? Uh, everywhere, through Jesus' teaching, he puts these two in conflict, where the desire to be holy confl seemingly conflicts with the desire to love your neighbor and just take care of other people who are in need. So the story that Jesus tells puts these two in conflict. And these two guys, out of a desire to maintain their, their ritualistic holiness and purity to the law, they pass by on the other side because they think this guy is probably dead at that point. And if he is, they don't want to risk it if he is dead because that means they will then be unclean. So it's out of a desire to maintain holiness that they pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan... <laughs> Okay, this teacher of the law, as soon as he heard Samaritan, he said, dang it, right? He's like, ah, should have known it was going there. Jesus has a tendency to do this because he's clearly followed him around for a while. Samaritans, uh, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They didn't get along very well. The Jews um, of the southern kingdom of Judah, they, they particularly viewed the Samaritans as uh, like half-breeds or people who intermarried with the Assyrians after the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom of Israel. Weren't supposed to do that, right? That was, no, no. They adapted a lot of their culture, a lot of their gods, which was, no, no. Like, you don't do that stuff. So they were viewed as religious heretics, okay, uh, by the pious Jews. And this teacher of the law, he would have viewed Samaritans as religious heretics. Um, and the, it was like... Uh, <laughs> This is like, uh, oh man, what's the story? Uh, whatever. This is like bad, like family feud type stuff, okay? Um, somebody tell me, what's the story, the famous story? What is it? Yeah, yeah, Romeo and Juliet. Got it, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> surprisingly, Romeo and Juliet was not at the top of my tongue. Or top of my, okay, so... Um, so bad blood. These guys hated each other. And there was even one instance where... It was between, somewhere between 86 and 89 that um, the Samaritans, they took dead, they took bones and put them into the temple in Jerusalem during the Passover. It's like, no, no. Like, you just ruined the entire Passover for the Jewish people because now the temple is unclean. Right? You're not supposed to touch a dead body. So this is just like bad blood. Uh, yeah, didn't go well. They didn't like each other. So, Religious heretics, and there are oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, you can read about it, where they like allied against each other's enemies and went to war with each other. So uh, socio-political enemies as well, they did not get along, did not like each other. Uh, a lot of tension here between them. As he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him, which if you're an astute reader of Scripture, when you see the word pity... Or compassion, that is a fundamental characteristic of God. God has compassion for us. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for the extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. 
because Jesus has put him in a place with this story that, uh, and then he says, go and do likewise. So that's what it means to be a neighbor, is what Jesus is saying. It would have been scandalous enough for Jesus to tell a story of a Samaritan, almost dead, on the side of the road, and a, a, a Levite or somebody else coming up and taking care of him. Like, why take care of a Samaritan? Let him die. But it's more scandalous that Jesus makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. That he is the one who has pity. He is the one who acts like God. And he leads this guy. Remember his original question. Band, you guys can come up and get set. Remember his original question that the guy asked was, who's my neighbor? Remember, he's, he's asking for uh, an answer to the question of, is my neighbor just my family and my fellow Israelites? Or is it beyond that? Which, settle the matter, Jesus, is what he's asking. So what's Jesus' answer here? <laughs> it's way beyond that. Loving your neighbor extends to your socio-political enemies and those whom you view as religious heretics. Those whom your culture predisposes you to hate the most. They're your neighbor. Go love them. <laughs> Go give them a ton of money to take care of them when they're in need at your own personal expense. And when it seems to conflict with your religious piety, your holiness, love them. Love them even more is what Jesus is saying. We'll unpack this more when I come up later to apply it. Let's pray. Lord, God, we thank you for your word that leads us. Thank you for your word that is, Lord, so applicable to today. Lord Jesus, we want to be formed by you, by your word. We want your truth to ring clearly in our minds. Lord, that our hearts would be set on following your way and knowing you more, Lord, even when it's really, really hard. Even when it challenges our preconceived notions, when it challenges our ideas of who we want to love, Lord, when it challenges what we're currently doing and how we're currently not living in your way. So, Lord, guide us in your truth. Would your Holy Spirit just speak to us? It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a little bit together. Father God, Lord, when we sing those words, we really mean them. God, we want to know who you are. We want to be filled with your love. And Lord, we want you to lead us in how we love those around us. So Lord, as we unpack your word, and Lord, discern how we can do that in a practical, everyday way. Lord, would your spirit guide us? Would your spirit lead us, Lord, to being more like Jesus in how we love others? It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. You guys can have a seat. <clears throat> All right. So remember, from this parable of the Good Samaritan, the question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers by expanding this concept of neighbor from people in, in one's home, one's nationality. They thought of their neighbor as being in their home and being fellow Israelites. Two, even your socio-political enemies and religious Heretics, or those you view as religious heretics. 
And today we're going to ask, we're going we're gonna to talk about it in the, in the sense of the world, or how do we love those in that last category, the furthest category um, away from us. How do we love people in the world? Just as Samaritans were hated, sociopolitical enemies, religious heretics, outside of the people of God in the view of most Israelites, Jesus says that we are to behave like the Samaritan does towards the injured man and to love others. So the question before us is how do we posture ourselves towards the world? The next few weeks we'll talk about the church and the home, but today how do we posture ourselves towards the world? I think there's four different ways that Christians or followers of Jesus can posture ourselves towards the world. One is isolation. We isolate from, think monastic communities, think everything, the church, the church does every, its own everything, right? Think conformity is another way. War and conflict is another way. And love is the fourth way. You know where I'm going with this, right? And I like the word posture because I think it gives us an image that we can immediately connect to this. So a posture of isolation from, I tend to think of like, like me in high school and I thought I was too cool and I didn't want to be somewhere and I'd like put my hood up and walk around like this when I didn't want to be bothered by anybody and I didn't want to bother anybody. That's one posture that the church can have towards the world is we put our hood up and put our cross our arms and avoid everybody. Another posture is conformity, okay? That one I think of like this posture of running at somebody, like gimme, 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 gimme. Like I want all of that and we just adopt all of the cultures and all of the world's principles. We can't do that. We can't do that. The other posture is a posture of war or fighting, in which case, again, we sit like this, okay? (laughs) And we're ready to box. Like anyone that comes at us, we're going to fight. And this is the posture that we present to the world is one of fighting, one of boxing, or one of conformity, or one of isolation, instead of a posture of love, a posture of an open handshake, a greeting, a posture of open arms, a posture of welcoming in and running to an acceptance. Those are very different postures, right? So in general... What is our posture towards the world and what should it be? I get it. There are times that church needs to stand firm. The church needs to to stick to its principles. I I get it. All of that we can do within a posture of love. So when we talk about this, I think one of the biggest ones that I see most commonly in the world today in churches like ours is a posture of war versus the posture of love. This is the one that I want to kind of hone in on today and talk about. We call this like culture war Christianity, where again, our posture towards those outside of the church is, come at me, bro, (laughs) is fists up, ready to fight, ready to knock knock out any argument or fight, beat down any argument that comes our way. And honestly, this posture actually leads Christians to isolate from the world because who wants to be around somebody who's like this all the time, right? In this posture, we only really engage 
with those outside of the church to defeat an argument, to fight, to prove that we are right. Some practical examples. This posture towards the world just makes a boogeyman out of something like CRT and wants to come out and fight against it. It focuses on just winning Supreme Court cases, that's it, to legislate our values. It focuses solely on getting our politicians elected to stand for our values so that we can defeat the values of the world. In all, this posture views the secularization of the world as a battle that we are losing. And the solution is to come out and fight. And what we've seen over the last few years is that when we adopt this principle of fighting and attacking, we come out and we use the same tactics that the world uses. Tactics like deception, like slander, like power grabbing, backstabbing, hating. Now, obviously, when I say it like that, those are not in the way of Jesus. But what happens is we get so engrossed in this culture war, this posture of war towards the culture, that we don't even realize that's what we're doing. And many of us just find ourselves there, and we don't know how we got there. In this posture, what we found, again, is that so many have been influenced more by our political persuasions than we have by the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that's a problem for Christians. For example, how does this parable of the Good Samaritan influence how Christians should think about immigrants and refugees? Or about racial reconciliation? broad brush. I'm going to let you sit with that and wrestle with that. And my challenge for you this week is when you're listening to your news podcast, when you're reading the news, however you consume news, whatever that is, if you find yourself getting worked up and angry, I want you to think about Jesus. Just pause. Just hit the pause button and just think about Jesus. Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Think about how, how strong of enemies the Samaritans and the Jews were. They fought wars against each other, like literal wars. Like their grandparents killed each other. They hated each other. The Samaritans spread bones to ruin their religious ceremony in the temple. They were religious heretics. Two of the deepest layers of our identity and who we are. They were enemies. And Jesus says, no, you love them and you take care of them. Your posture should be one of love and giving a ton of money to care for them when they are in need. Instead of this posture of war and fighting. How does that influence how we should view the culture around us? So hit, hit the pause button when that happens and you find yourself there. And just think, am I engaging? Am I thinking of the world and those outside of the church, outside of my home? 
Am I thinking of them with a, a warlike mentality, a fighting mentality, or a mentality of love? Posture of war says, I am against you. A posture of love says, I am for you. I am for our culture's flourishing, for your human flourishing on a broad scale. And the problem with a posture of war, which when it becomes such a, a predominant posture for the church, is we never actually get an opportunity to sit across from somebody that we disagree with. Okay, I'm not saying, I'm not saying our, our concept of love has to be roped into this concept of tolerance. We talked about that last week. Those two are distinct. We need to stand firm on truth and our values. But we never actually get an opportunity to sit across from somebody and with our body language and with our words say, I may disagree with you and your decisions on life or disagree with your ethics on this, but I love you and I still desire your benefit. When we posture ourselves in such a way, when we're like this to the culture, we never get that opportunity. Because again, who wants to come and hang out with somebody who's like this all the time? The posture of war attacks. The posture of love gives. A posture of war isolates from or fights against, and a posture of love invites in and goes to. A posture of war seeks power, a posture of love seeks service. These are two very different ways of approaching and viewing the world around us. And it's not just this parable of the Good Samaritan in which Jesus talks about this. Our posture of love, it needs, or our posture towards the world needs to be one of love. John 3.16. Probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture, the most memorized verse in all of Scripture. It says, For God so loved the world. How John typically uses the word world, and in this context, this is how he's using it. How he uses the word world is humanity that is in rebellion against God. Humanity that has rejected God, turned from him, and is living in disobedience and sin. God so loved those people who have rejected him, who are living in rebellion against him, that he gave. God doesn't love so much that he comes out and proves that he's right and they're wrong. He loves, so he gives to those who reject him, those who are living in disobedience to him. It's part of the character of God. God loves, so he gives. And he gives his one and only son. Think about this. If we want to love like Jesus, and this is how God approaches those who were in rebellion and who hated him. Jesus dying on the cross for us. That is how he loved us when we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, right? That is how he loved us. He took our sin upon himself and died on the cross for us while we were still sinners. 
That is the posture that God has towards the world. The posture of love. And then Paul spells it out pretty directly in Romans chapter 12. I'm not going to comment on this very much. I'm just going to read it and leave it to you to discern, is this your posture towards those outside of the church or isn't it? And it's not as if Paul's culture was really accepting of Christianity. <laughs> in a few short years after this, they would be feeding Christians to lions, burning them in the city to light up the night like torches. And Paul writes this. Bless those who persecute you. Doesn't say attack them back. Doesn't say fight to the death. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't go out seeking conflict, stirring up fights. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. We make a lot of the qualifications, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, and rightfully so. But our goal should be to live at peace, not to stir up fights and controversy with the culture around us. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, this is going to sound a lot like the Good Samaritan, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's likely a phrase that just means you'll win them with kindness. Kind of deal. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As followers of Jesus, this is to be our posture towards the world, as described here. And if our hearts are fueled by anger or fear or hatred or war, that is not the posture that Jesus calls his people to towards the world. It is a posture of love. So, with as much prophetic energy as I can muster, and by prophetic, I mean calling the church back to the real way of Jesus, to the truth of Scripture when we have gone astray. I'm challenging you to stop waging war with the people you are called to love. So let's all bow our heads and let's pray for just a moment. I want you to reflect on God's heart towards the world on what Jesus did for those who hated him. When Jesus had an opportunity to wage war, to raise an army and go attack the Romans and defeat them so that Israel can have their own independent state, 
What did Jesus do when he was before Pilate? What did Jesus do when he had the 5,000 around him who wanted to make him king? Jesus died for them because he loved them. Reflect on that for just a moment. And then with the love of God in mind and how he interacted with the world who was against him, reflect on your heart over the last year. Was the posture of your heart towards the world one of war and fighting and combative nature? Or was it one of love? If it was the former, I invite you to repent. If it was the latter, I invite you to continue and pray that the Spirit of God will continue to give you that strength to love, to love the world. Lord Jesus, your way is hard. It's not easy to love when we feel attacked, when we feel threatened, when we feel as if our way of life may be, may be in question, when we're convinced that others are wrong and we are right. Lord, it's really, really hard to still love people. So, Lord, give us wisdom, give us discernment. Reform our hearts, Lord, that your love would flow through us and emanate off of us to the culture, to the world around us. And, Lord, that we would engage with the world not out of a posture of war and fighting, but out of a posture of love. That we would bring your way, your truth, to a world that needs to know the message of your goodness, needs to know that you love them, that even though we sin, you love us. Help us to extend your grace to them. Help us, Lord, to be formed more by you, by your word, by your truth, by your way, Jesus, than by our own passion and sinful desires by news outlets, by whatever else, Lord, might form us. Because Jesus, you are everything to us. And we want to live your way even when it's hard. We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more song together.